Good evening. Glad you're here. Uh, we, uh, I still wanted to continue in the Psalm of Ascents, even though they've arrived in Jerusalem and they are now uh, have left Jerusalem. But I wanted we we did three of the Psalms of Ascents last week, 120, 121, 122. And the Psalms of Ascent are 15 Psalms, beginning in Psalm 120, going to 134, that uh, I really believe pilgrims recited and read as they were going up to Jerusalem on major feast days, like Passover, Pentecost, or the Day of Atonement. And uh, the Psalms that we're going to look at tonight, we're going to look at Psalm 123, 124, and 125, just the next three in the sequence. And I would call them songs of faith. That, and and it, to me, it's, it's just, it's a, if you want to put a title on the group, if you want to you know, pocket them together, uh, I think that there's a lot of faith in these three Psalms. Let's pray and then we'll start digging in. Father, I thank you so very much for the time that we have here this evening to look at your word, trusting that you will speak to us through your word. I thank you for the members of our church that are uh, uh, in Israel right now. I thank you that they've had a great time. I thank you that there's been a lot of information a lot of uh, just illumination and realization of how real your word is because of the places they've walked, the things that they've seen, the things that they felt, the things that they've learned. And I ask you to continue to give them strength toward the end of their journey as they work through Petra and then uh, head home. And I pray that even on the journey home that they'll be soaking in memories and experiences that they've had that make the scripture come alive as a result of a, a journey like this. So as we journey into these Psalms this evening, uh, speak to us, not so we have more information about them, but so you use them in our lives to draw us closer to Jesus Christ. And so you use these words in our life to help us walk faithfully and obediently with you. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. I'm, amen. So, Psalm 123, when you look at these, they're pretty, you, know, you have four verses in Psalm 123, you have eight in Psalm 124, and you have five in Psalm 125. They're, they're, you know, they're, so they're not very long, and Psalm 123 uh, begins the same way Psalm 121 began, that I will lift my eyes. Uh, uh, the former, 121, said, I'll lift my eyes to the hills. And it was really uh, in anticipation of moving up to Jerusalem and the journey going up to Jerusalem. But uh, this psalm is really going to deal with something that goes even beyond that because the writer of this psalm is looking to the heavens. You know, that's looking far beyond even Jerusalem, but looking to the heavens. And, and if it's a beautiful psalm, and if I were to say that this was a, if there was a one-word description of this one, I would say focus. That this is, a, it's going to concentrate on our focus and what we focus on. 
and, and, and you see that because even the mention of eyes, you look at eyes, it, it, the word eyes occurs four times in the first two verses. You know, when you study Scripture, you want to mark these key words and see these repeated words because they're going to help you understand what the text is really dealing about. Uh, but then also there's, uh, in, in verse 2, you not only have eyes, but you have look to there. And, and so as we read this psalm, uh, we discover that uh, the people are in circumstances uh, in which they could lose heart. They could become discouraged and they could be cast down or defeated by their circumstances but they're going to look to God beyond their circumstances. And, and that's a key that we need to understand is how do we look to God when our circumstances are pretty crummy? And, and because that's what we're all going to be. And we're going to discover that, uh, that they could lose heart and they could be cast down and they could be defeated. Uh, but they're going to not be controlled by their circumstances, but they're going to look to the Lord. And, and so when we look at heading up to Jerusalem, I want you to think about this fishing trip that I went on <laughs> and realize that maybe uh, it'd really be good if we uh, were able to find uh, Our PowerPoint again. There we go. So as we look at Psalm uh, 123, if you were you were to think about um, New Testament equivalent, you might look at Hebrews 12. And Hebrews 12 verses 1 and 2 says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and, uh, and, and moved up to sit in the, in the very presence of God. So when we think about uh, lifting up our eyes to the heavens, uh, he says, I, to you I lift up my eyes, to you who are enthroned in the heavens, Behold, as the eyes of the servant looks to the hands of the master, as the eyes of a maid to the hands of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he is gracious to us. Uh, be gracious to us, O Lord, be gracious to us, for we are greatly filled with contempt. Our soul is greatly filled with scoffing of those who are at ease and with the contempt, contempt of the proud. Uh, so when we start thinking about lifting our eyes to the heavens and, and focusing on Him, you say, well, how should God's people, uh, God's servants, look to their heavenly master? Alexander McLaren said that they should stand where they can see Him. They should have their gaze fixed upon Him. They should look with patient trust as well with eager willingness to start into activity when he indicates his commands. Uh, uh, McLaren is just, has written some incredible work on the uh, attributes of God, and he has a multi-volume work on the attributes of God, but he has a deep understanding of, of how we should focus on the Lord. Spurgeon said 
that we must use our eyes with resolution, for they will not go upward to the Lord themselves, but they incline to look downward or inward or anywhere but to the Lord. So when we say, I'm going to look to the heavens, I'm going to look to the Lord in my circumstances, Spurgeon goes on to say that true saints, like obedient servants, look to their Lord God reverently. So when we want to look to the Lord, we're going to look reverently. And when you say reverently, it's uh, having a holy awe of who God is. It's having an inward fear of, of how great and glorious He is. So when we look at God reverentially, we, we approach Him with an eye that, that He is sovereign, that He is mighty, that He is ruler. And as a result, we watch Him obediently. Uh, because of who He is, we want to walk in obedience to His commands. Uh, we, wanted to be, we want to be guided by His eye. We want to be guided by His instructions and His direction. And, and that means that we're going to be attentive. So we want to look to the Lord attentively. Uh, that means that I'm going to really listen when He says something. I'm not going to take it lightly. I'm not going to take it flippantly. But he has something for me to do. If it's uncomfortable, I don't just move past it and look for something that feels better. But I go ahead and work through the tough stuff. That's one of the advantages of studying the Scripture the way we do exegetically. You know, when you study the Scripture topically, you can hop to the comfortable stuff and you can just keep moving around. But when you study the Scripture exegetically and you just kind of move word by word, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, you have to deal with the hard stuff and you have to wrestle with it. You can't just move past it and say, that doesn't feel comfortable. Uh, but, I, but I'm going to be very attentive to God's Word and what He has to say. Uh, Spurgeon said that we should also look continuously. You know, there's never a time when we're off duty. There's never a time when we're, uh, we think, uh, this just isn't a good opportunity. This isn't the best of times for me to deal with what God wants me to do. You know, but, but continuously be thinking about how He wants us to live, how He wants us to incorporate Scripture into our life, how He wants us to view Him and His commands. And it's not something um, that many of us are skilled with because we compartmentalize so many things in our life. We compartmentalize our work, our family, our church, and we kind of we have different boxes for how we live. But He wants us to be Lord over our life. He wants to be Lord over our life continuously in every area of our life. So we, we look at Him that way. Uh, we, we look at Him expectantly, waiting for, uh, for Him to supply our needs. We understand that He's sufficient, but we want Him to, uh, we want to be expectant for His, uh, when we wait on Him to have, wait on His mercy, wait on His graciousness, uh, wait on His direction. And, and we want to focus on Him singly. In other words, just Him. No other confidence, no other look, anything else, but just Him. Uh, 
and, and have that have, have our have our focus, our target, just on Him. And, and as a result, we'll do that submissively, waiting patiently for the Lord um, in all of our activities, but more expressly in our suffering. You know, it's difficult to submit when things aren't going well because you want God to work on your terms and your way on your timetable, and we kind of have a demanding spirit. But when we're submissive, we kind of, we open our hands and say, God, bring it into my life because I know it's filtered through your fingers of love. And I can take what you bring me because I know that you don't bring me more than I can stand, and you're sufficient for every need that I really have. So we submit to his work in our, way, in our lives. And, um, and imploringly, it, it, when, you, when you look at that, I, I think that it's, uh, it's saying, God, have mercy on me in my affliction. You know, it, it's, I implore you, to, you know, to, to have mercy on me as I walk through this and give me the strength to sustain me. So obedient servants in the midst of difficult times are to look. And when you look at who he's referring to, even in these verses, he starts with uh, um, servants. He says, as the eyes of the servants look to the hand of their master. So slavery in those days was very common. But he said, you know, if you're a slave, you look to the hand of your masters. And then he feminized it later in that verse when he says, the eyes of a maid look to the hand of her mistress. So, you know, he understood that, it, you know, it wasn't just for men, but it was for women. And he says, then you see that he said in verse one, he said, I, or you, I lift up my eyes. But there's a transition in the middle of verse two when he says, our eyes look to the Lord, our God. And it becomes... Uh, plural. It becomes personal for all of us. He says, our eyes look to the Lord until he is gracious to us. Uh, so if you look at this focus, uh, it, it's this picture in these first couple of verses of having a gaze to heaven. And uh, you have to ask yourself this question, does my gaze distinguish me from others? Does my gaze separate me from the rest because I gaze to the Lord? I look to the heavens. I look to His sufficiency. Our tendency today is to look to our own sufficiency, work out our own problems. There's a real pride issue that we had is that I can handle it. I can deal with it. I can work it out. And, and we've, we're trained that way in our culture to be self-sufficient. We're encouraged to be that. We're awarded to be self-sufficient. You know, that that's, that's what people look for. But the picture here is lifting your eyes to the heavens, setting your gaze on Him, and letting Him be the difference maker in your life, and being distinctively different from others because you gaze to Him. You know, when you think about uh, an example in Scripture of, of how that might play out, uh, I would go to uh, Nehemiah 4. Uh, Nehemiah 4, and, and, and perhaps, you know, this, uh, this psalm could have been written in the Nehemiah-Ezra kind of 
time period as they were rebuilding the wall. But when you look at Nehemiah 4, you have this issue with Sanballat and Tobiah, these rulers from around Jerusalem, when Nehemiah went back, and, and you look at the very first uh, uh, verse, uh, he says, Now it came about that when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry and mocked the Jews. When you're walking with the Lord today, and you're doing what God wants you to do in this society that we live in, you are going to be mocked. You're going to be made fun of. You're going to be called narrow. You're going to be called weak. You're going to be, you're, you could be ridiculed for having faith in Jesus Christ and saying, I walk with the Lord. I desire to be with Him. Because our society is moving more and more uh, uh, against the Lord and against anybody of faith. And so this mocking attitude that, uh, that Nehemiah uh, felt, you know, was, was very prevalent. Uh, and, and when they start looking at uh, the, the challenges that they had, uh, he says, he spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria. And he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? So he's giving them these uh, taunts and triggering their, these, he's asking these rhetorical questions that, that challenge the work that Nehemiah and those that are coming back to rebuild the wall are going to do. And, and they're looking at, he's ridiculing their effort and, and being hostile to them. And, and he says, you know, what, what are you feeble Jews doing? You think you're going to be able to restore it yourselves? You know, the wall is two and a half miles around, and, and the stones are down, and they were, the people that built it were more numerous. They, they were better prepared. And you think this small band of people that have come back from Babylon are going to be able to rebuild the walls? And you think you can do it yourself? And, and, and do you think that you're going to finish the wall that, so that you can offer sacrifices? You know, you have, to, you have to finish the project before you can offer sacrifices. And he mocked them and think, you're not going to be able to complete this task. Uh, you know, you're going to have people that say, look at you. And you say, why are you walking with Christ? Why do you go to church? Man, we have a good tea time at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning. Why are you in church? You know, there's, there's always something that they want to entice you with. You know, we're going fishing. There's, we've got a guide off in the bay. You know, why don't you come? Let's go to the lake. There's good skiing this weekend. You know, there's always somebody that's enticing you and saying, why do you want to go do that? And, and, and they said, you know, can you finish this in a day? Do you think you're really going to be able to complete this task? And you think you're going to be able to, to knock it out? Uh, and... Uh, don't you realize how enormous this task is? And, and then, can you revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? You know, the gates were burned, but the stones were not burned. The stones couldn't burn. The stones were tumbled down. So that's, that's not even a true statement that he's making there. But he says, you, you think that you can do this? And here's this mocking attitude that they're, that they're throwing at the Jews. 
You know, and, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, was near him and said, even when they're building, a fox could jump on it and he would break the stone wall down. You know, so it had a bite because uh, they said, you know, that they, uh, they can't do this task and they can't, it won't be sufficient and it won't work. And despite the taunts, despite what was going on, you know, um, this anger threatened them. And you look back and you say, uh, what kind of lesson can we learn from Nehemiah uh, in this setting? And uh, one is that Nehemiah didn't retaliate. You know, he didn't come back and say, I, say look how strong we are. We can do this. We're, we can handle it. He didn't come back, but he went and he said, here, oh, our God, how we are despised. And he talked about that. And he said, return their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in land of captivity. He said, do not forgive their iniquity and not let their sin be blotted out before you for they have demoralized the builders. So what he did was he prayed. So when people attack you, you don't retaliate, but you pray for them. You pray for that God will have his way in your life and in the life of those that are opposing you. And that's the hard thing. It's really hard to pray for your enemies, but that's what the Beatitudes tells us to do. It says, pray for those who persecute you, right? You know, and that's what Jesus said to do. So, so we have to turn it around and not be controlled by our emotions and try to react, retaliate and lash back, but turn it around and pray for God to do His work in your life and in theirs when the mockers come and when they come to make fun of you. And, and so there's some importance. He, he talked back to God, not to the people. And he said, we're despised. You know, when you look at uh, the eyes uh, here in, in, uh, in this psalm, it's... Uh, it's, it's a fascinating time to think about, you know, how uh, he says, be gracious to us, O Lord, be gracious to us. Uh, he's saying, have mercy on us, O Lord. Uh, when you look at the NIV and ESV, it says, uh, have uh, mercy. So some translations will say, have mercy, but the New American Standard and the Legacy Standard use the word gracious. said, our eyes look to the Lord our God until He is gracious to us or shows mercy to us. And then, and then His prayer in verse 3 of Psalm 123 is, be gracious to us, O Lord, be gracious to us. Uh, or have mercy, for we are greatly filled with contempt, and our soul is greatly filled with the scoffing of those who are at ease. And, and so not only does our gaze distinguish us, but our gaze will result in scoffing. When we look to the Lord, our gaze is going to result in scoffing and with the contempt of the proud. Now, as we look at this, um, as we look at this psalm, you know, we have confidence when we approach God with, with mercy 
and, and look at him in that way. And he says, you know, what we want to do is we don't want to ever waver. But when you look at Psalm 123, it, it, it ends with this prayer. And it ends with this attitude of, uh, you know, uh, of crying out for graciousness and crying out for mercy. But there's no real conclusion. So you come back in, and I think you, you move right into this Psalm of David in Psalm 124. And, uh, and there are a lot of different uh, ideas of who may have written this psalm. Derek Kidner is a good theologian and writes a great commentary on psalms. And he really attributes this psalm to David. And probably David, after a battle with Philistines, after a battle you know, that he'd been in, just because of some of the... Uh, language that's within this psalm. And when we look, it has this, uh, it, Psalm 124 is really this kind of a beautiful, moving psalm. And I, I guess if I called Psalm 123 focus, I would call Psalm 124 uh, Great Escape. You know, I like the movie Great Escape. It's an old one, but I mean... <laughs> But I, I mean, there's this, uh, there's this, uh, our soul has escaped in verse seven. That's where I get the escape. You know, and, and so you look at this great escape. And, and, and I would say one of the chief reasons that I would I'd look at that is because of uh, the power of these. Uh, there's six images that you have here uh, in these verses. It said, had it not been the Lord who is on our side, let Israel now say, had it not been the Lord who is on our side. Now, that's repeated in those two verses. You understand that you have God on your side. And uh, in the very first part of verse 8, our help is in the name of the Lord. So the issue is God is on your side. God is your helper. And if it were not, had it not been the Lord who is on our side, uh, when men rose up against us, the end of verse 2, uh, you would have one of, these, uh, one of these images. They would have swallowed us alive uh, when their anger was kindled against us. You know, they understood that their enemy was fierce. And if God had not intervened, they'd have been devoured by their enemy. So this is more that imagery of David writing a psalm after a battle. You know, that he'd been in a fierce conflict, in a fierce struggle. And the foe could have been any number of nations, including the Philistines, that were a threat to David. Uh, but, you know, you have to think that there's a great enemy. And certainly we have a great enemy in the devil who prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Uh, you know, we say that if the Lord had not been on our side, uh, the devil would have swallowed us up. You know, we would have been instruments of his instead of instruments of the Lord. So there's this, there's this picture of being swallowed up. Uh, and then in verse 4, the waters would have engulfed us. You know, if you've looked at some of the pictures of those folks that have been at Israel, I mean, I, I'm sure you've followed some of them on Facebook or whatever. 
Yeah, it's a dry and desolate land. There's, water is a key issue. If there's water, there's, there's growth. If there's water, there's food. But where you see there's so much desert and it's so dry that when rain comes, it's a welcome sight. But when a, a, a rain comes because the water, the ground is so dry that there can be a torrent or a flood in some of the wadis. And it can, you can have these flash floods over this, this, uh, this dry land when a heavy rain comes. And it gives you this image that the waters would have engulfed us. And, and uh, the stream would have swept over our souls. I mean, look, some of you have experienced that when Harvey came a few years ago and the rains came and the waters came and you couldn't stop it coming in your door. And the next thing you know, you have several feet of water in your home. And, and if you didn't experience that, you're blessed. But there are a lot of people that, that suffered a great deal and you couldn't, it's like it, it overwhelms you. It comes and you can't stop it. So that's where this, this imagery here that, that it, it, it would have engulfed us and it would have swept over our souls. And, and it would have torn up everything and, 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 and wiped us out. And, and raging waters would have swept over our soul and everything before them. So this is it's a, this real steep image of, of destruction and something overcoming you. In verse 6, you know, that the animal uh, would have, we would have been torn by their teeth. I mean, you think back on Daniel in the lion's den, and uh, when the king came back in the next morning to see what had happened, I'm sure he expected to see a lion chewing on a bone, you know. But Daniel's teeth had not been torn by the flesh because of the sufficiency of the Lord. And, and that's how God protects. That's how, had not the Lord been on our side, we would have been ripped apart uh, by their teeth. And, and, and we would have been a bird uh, out of the snare of the trapper. You know, we would have been entangled uh, in this trap. And when you look at uh, the imagery here, you th I mean, you think about it. Uh, along the lines of the great escape, uh, imagine Moses going before Pharaoh and he said, uh, Pharaoh, I'm Moses, and I have a message from God. He says, let my people go. No. You know, he comes back, said, I'm back. The message is the same. Let my people go. No. And, and, and so uh, there's that imagery that... Uh, that they could have been swept away, you know, in, in Pharaoh's wrath. But God was on their side, and God walked through ten plagues until Pharaoh finally said, go. And, and when they went, when they left, when they were gone, and, uh, and they were on the other side of the Red Sea, and they stood and they looked back at the churning wheels of chariots in the Red Sea, uh, it would be easy for them to say if the Lord had not been on our side. 
You know, it was God that delivered them. It wasn't them. It wasn't their sufficiency. It wasn't their cleverness. It was God that delivered them. And, and that's why when you come to verse 8, our help is in the name of the Lord. You know, that's where we look. We look for the, for the Lord because He's the one that helps us. Uh, others may offer to help us, but we ne- dare not turn to them. Uh, because only the Lord is the maker of the heaven and earth. Remember last week we had a reference to creation in one of the Psalms, and here's another reference to creation, that God is the maker of heaven and earth. It's all the way through Scripture. You can't miss it. It's, It's over and over and over. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who's the maker of heaven and earth. Uh... He is the one that's adequate for our weaknesses because He's omniscient. Uh, He knows everything we need and He knows perfectly what we need. He's omnipresent. He's always there when we need Him. He's omnipotent. He's strong enough and He's powerful enough. And He can do whatever we need. He's loving and gracious And He has our spiritual interest at heart. The Lord is on our side. Our help is in the name of the Lord. And He's strong. You know, when we look to Him for our help, uh, Spurgeon said, In God we have help as troubled sinners, uh, delivered from the punishment and guilt of our sin. We have help as dull scholars being taught to know and understand God's Word. We have help as trembling professors being witnesses to His gospel. God giving us words to speak and blessing our testimony in the lives of others. We have help as inexperienced travelers. These pilgrims going up to Jerusalem understood that they had help in the name of the Lord. And our help is not to be found in someone else. Uh, It's not to be found in ourselves, but because we've tested God's Word and we've seen God's Word and we've seen Him sufficient, we say, the Lord has helped me. The Lord has been there. And that's what we hold on to in this uh, great escape. Uh, Moving to Psalm, yeah. That's, that's a beautiful psalm, and um, obviously, um, but um, that's a chiastic yeah. psalm, right? So mm-hmm. The outer one and eight, and two and seven, and three and six build up to the uh, the great escape point, which is the main point of the psalm in uh, four and five, right? Right. Um, so if you, if you look at that, I mean, it's uh, obviously. It's, uh, it's written by the Holy Spirit, obviously, but that's it's beautiful structure, and that, uh, and you can see it in that um, very short um, song. And that's why we we talked about this a bit last week. Didn't mention it tonight, but this is poetry. So, so we study poetry a little bit different. It's not like this, you know, historical discourse. But so he's not giving this explanation, but he's saying this, there's this imagery of what God has done and how God's work and the structure you know, points toward what God has done in looking to Him, looking to the heavens. He is sufficient. He is the one. 
and our help is in Him. And, uh, and isn't it great for us to be able to say, the Lord who is on our side? That you hang your hat on the Lord who is on your side? And, yeah, and, and, and a lot of times we forget that. We, we forget that He's there. We forget the reality of it. But when you, when you come back and you kind of, you know, if this is a Psalm of David, you know, and he's coming out of battle, and he saw God as sufficient to deliver him from battle, and, and it, it was fierce, and it was against a horrible enemy. You know, he understands that God is the deliverer. God is the strength, and God is the one that provides it. So, yeah, it, it's, we would have been swept over ourselves. The raging waters would have engulfed us. You know, we would have, we would have been torn by their teeth, but for the Lord. And there's a, it is the great escape. He does deliver us. That's a, that's a key point. That's great. I appreciate that, Rob. <sighs> Moving to Psalm 125. Yeah. I'm going to name this one Eternal Security. <laughs> so the title I, could, I give Psalm 125 is Eternal Security just because you know, to those who trust in the Lord. I mean, there's not been many times in history when people really believed that their, that their lives and their fortunes were secure. You know, uh, life has always been uncertain. And uh, it seems like today we live in particularly insecure times. Our culture is in a state of decline so that... Uh, the things that we used to take for granted are disappearing. Things like uh, honesty, courage, concern for other people, uh, self-discipline, responsibility, hard work. Uh, and in their place, we're producing a generation of, uh, of cultural barbarians. You know, when I say cultural barbarians, you know, they're the, they're the ones that think about their own immediate self-gratification. And, and it, it's like we've entered into a new dark ages because it just gets darker and darker as we see the decline of the morality of man and, 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 and any heart for God at all, any heart for Him at all. And so this is the sixth of these songs of ascent or psalms of ascent. And it really speaks to the security of the believer even in bad times. And that's why I think these are songs of faith and great faith because the civilization, you know, as they were going up to Jerusalem, the civilization where they, you know, were living uh, they, it was tough. People, it, it was collapsing. Uh, even if it was in Ezra and Nehemiah's day, the walls had been down. They were trying to rebuild it. Uh, and they knew that God was their firm foundation, that there was a foundation, but there was a false trust. And, and you almost think about Peter when you think about, uh, you know, built on the rock. You know, there's this incident in Peter's, Peter's life when Jesus talked to him and he asked his disciples, who do you think that I am? And, and Peter said, you're the Christ, the Son of God, Son of the living God. And, he, and Jesus said, this was not revealed to you by man, 
but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you, Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, the Roman Catholic twisted that. The Roman Catholic Church twisted it, and they thought that Peter was the first apostle and the first pope, and and uh, that that Peter would be uh, the one that really built the church. But that's not what Jesus had in mind at all. He didn't under. That's what not what his t- intent was. I think that uh, Peter really even understood after Jesus talked to him about what Isaiah 20, uh, 28 said. Uh, Isaiah speaks of God laying a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. And so we build on Jesus by faith and we're to trust in him. So that first verse says, those who trust in the Lord are as Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. So it's interesting that that Mount Zion, you know, you look at those folks that have been in Israel and when they went up on the Temple Mount and they stood on the Temple Mount, you understand that that's the epicenter of history. You know, that, that so much has happened there in the past and that there's such turmoil there in the present, but there is so much promise about what's going to happen there in the future. And you understand that that that's how God works at this Mount Zion that cannot be moved but abides forever. So you look as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. So when you look at those pictures, even that we looked at of, of Jerusalem earlier, you know, there's mountains that sound, surround Jerusalem, and they have this picture, they have this imagery that, 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 that this is God's place, and it is surrounded by these mountains or these structures that uh, have an image of strength. Uh, but God is stronger than that. But it says, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forever. So, you know, when we look at this time forth and forever, you know, the mountain location of Jerusalem uh, suggested by the author, you know, um, it, it, I think it encourages the people that, that God is their strength and he's their protector uh, from this time forth and forever. And if you go back to Second uh, Kings 6, you know, you, you look at Second Kings 6, uh, Elisha uh, uh, was dealing with the prophet Ben-Hadad, the king of Assyria, who had been fighting Israel. And every time he made plans to attack Israel, God revealed the plans to Elisha. And Elisha told the king of Israel and the Jewish armies escaped. And Ben-Hadad thought that there had to be a spy there. You know, he thought that there was a traitor among the officers. And, uh, and someone told him the truth and he decided what he needed to do is capture Elisha. So Elisha was at Dothan with a young man who was his servant. So Ben-Hadad marched the armies to Dothan by night and placed them around the city. And at daybreak, when the young man came out from the gates of the city to draw water, he saw the soldiers and was terrified. And and he went to Elisha and said, uh, Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? (laughs) We're We're surrounded. And Elisha said, Don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. You know, 2 Kings 6, 16. 
Elisha prayed, asking God to open the eyes of the servant. And when he did, the young man saw the hills were full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. You know, it's that the Lord is with us. You know, they can't see it. You can't see it. But, but God surrounds us and God protects us. And when, you know, when you see this, the psalmist writing this, he has this, he has this idea of the, even in the presence of the wicked, uh, he, God is there. He knew there aren't perfect conditions that we have to trust God in. You know, we don't always have perfect conditions, but we have to trust Him when things aren't perfect. And, uh, and so uh, this uh, acknowledges that um, there's enemies around us, but God is stronger and more dominant than the enemies. And, and He says He really has, uh, I think, kind of four significant responses to the dangers. In verse 3, he has a promise. Because he said, For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest upon the land of the righteous, so that the righteous will not put forth their hands to do wrong. So he promises that the wicked aren't going to control you and, and control you to do wrong. And so there's this promise uh, that our problems are not going to last forever. There's going to be deliverance in time. And when we trust in the Lord, we know the outcome, that He's the victor. Now, the outcome isn't always painless. <laughs> and and, and it, the outcome isn't always uh, to get there painlessly. But... We know that Jesus is the victor. We, we know the end of the book. And we understand that, that, that the psalm, uh, this psalm would be uh, a, a promise of deliverance that God was going to provide. Uh, that he could understand that God had not forgotten them and that God would intervene to help. And not only in their relationships with other people, uh, but in whatever they faced, that it was gonna, he was going to be there. Uh, in verse 4, you have a prayer. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. Uh, so in the meantime, he says, those who are trying to serve God uh, are, and are living in this world need help. You know, it, so it's a prayer for God to be gracious. Uh, it, it's noted, it, you know, it's important to notice the difference between uh, uh, there's a sure judgment on the wicked that's going to come, but God being good to those who are upright in their hearts. You know, I, sometimes we forget how good God has been to us and, and that in our faithfulness, we need to walk in a way that we remember the way God has worked so faithfully in our lives uh, and look for how he's working in the lives of others. You know, it's a, he has a warning uh, in verse 5. And uh, the warning is, uh, but as for those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead them away with the doers of iniquity. So if you think... Uh, 
that you're righteous because you're living among God's people, but you're not actively His. You know, He says He's going to turn you uh, to your crooked ways. Uh, the Lord is going to banish evildoers or, or lead away the doers of iniquity. And God's going to judge, but we need to know that we belong to Christ, not on our merit, but on what He has done. And, and then in verse 5 as well, you have this blessing, peace be upon Israel. And that's how the psalmist concludes, and that's this blessing that um, uh, it's an it's God's presence uh, upon His promise in Israel, and that includes us, His people. Uh, it's like this, here's this shalom upon what God's done. You know, we're uh, into March now, believe it or not. Today, as of today, isn't that right? And uh, so I, I was already... You know, you go through the stores and they've got Easter stuff out already, but they have a pretty significant stuff on St. Patrick's Day that's, you know, coming out. You know, you can get your green hats and all that kind of stuff already. And and so, you know, it's not a bad time to remember uh, about St. Patrick was this uh, young Roman who brought Christianity to Ireland. Uh, he had been uh, captured in England by Irish pirates when he was only 16 years old and he'd been uh, put to work as a slave in Ireland uh, for an Irish chieftain. He escaped after six years and returned to his family, but then was called by God to go back and be a missionary. And I mean, and, you know, where God called him to go back and be a missionary to is where he'd been a slave. He, he called him to Ireland. And uh, so, you know, he... He looked back at his uh, his home, and it was kind of a, a collapsed Roman civilization. And uh, he looked forward, and ahead of him were fearless, wicked, pe wicked people of Ireland, and uh, and and these wild natives. And and he had no uh, outward security. And uh, he went back and ministered in Ireland for thirty years. And when he died at the age of 76, after 30 years of ministry, uh, it was reported that as Roman lands went from peace to chaos, the land of Ireland was rushing even more rapidly from chaos to peace. Instead of viewing the collapse of his culture as an unmitigated tra tragedy, Patrick seized it as an unprecedented opportunity to propagate Christ's gospel. You say, where did Patrick find strength in such times? Uh, he gives the answer in a prayer that's known as St. Patrick's Breastplate. And it goes like this. It said, I arise today through God's strength to pilot me, God's might to uphold me, God's wisdom to guide me, God's eye to look before me, God's ear to hear me, God's word to speak for me, God's hand to guard me, God's way to lie before me, God's shield to protect me, 
God's host to save me from the snares of devils, from temptations of vices, from everyone who shall wish me ill. Christ to shield me today against poison, against burning, against drowning, against wounding, so that there may come to be abundance of reward. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise. I arise today through a mighty strength. That's the security we need. It's the same security that's given to the people of God when they say, those who trust in the Lord are as Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. It's a quick run through three Psalms. But it's this focus on Him. Understand that there's a great way of escape. And there is eternal security because He is our hope. Father, thank You so very much for an opportunity to look at these three precious Psalms. Uh, Thank You for the encouragement of Your presence. Thank You for the promise of Your uh, comfort and sufficiency and guidance. Thank You for the hope of Your deliverance and the security that we have in you. Uh, You are mighty. You are strong. You are sufficient. And we need you. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.